Chapter 16 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 16 of The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne Read by Nicodemus Clifford's Chamber Never had the old house appeared so dismal to poor Hepzibah as when she departed on that wretched errand. There was a strange aspect in it. As she trod along the foot-worn passages, and opened one crazy door after another, and ascended the creaking staircase, she gazed wistfully and fearfully around. It would have been no marvel to her excited mind if behind or beside her there had been the rustle of dead people's garments, or pale visages awaiting her on the landing-place above. Her nerves were set all ajar by the scene of passion and terror through which she had just struggled. Her colloquy with Judge Pynchon, who so perfectly represented the person and attributes of the founder of the family, had called back the dreary past. It weighed upon her heart. Whatever she had heard from legendary aunts and grandmothers concerning the good or evil fortunes of the Pensions, stories which had heretofore been kept warm in her remembrance by the chimney-corner glow that was associated with them, now recurred to her sombre, ghastly, cold, like most passages of family history, when brooded over in melancholy mood. The whole seemed little else but a series of calamity, reproducing itself in successive generations, with one general hue, and varying in little, save the outline. But Hepzibah now felt as if the judge, and Clifford, and herself, they three together, were on the point of adding another incident to the annals of the house, with a bolder relief of wrong and sorrow, which would cause it to stand out from all the rest. Thus it is that the grief of the passing moment takes upon itself an individuality, and a character of climax, which it is destined to lose after a while, and to fade into the dark grey tissue common to the grave or glad events of many years ago. It is but for a moment, comparatively, that anything looks strange or startling, a truth that has the bitter and the sweet in it. But Hepzibah could not rid herself of the sense of something unprecedented at that instant passing and soon to be accomplished. Her nerves were in a shake. Instinctively she paused before the arched window and looked out upon the street, in order to seize its permanent objects with her mental grasp, and thus to steady herself from the reel and vibration which affected her more immediate sphere. It brought her up, as we may say, with a kind of shock, when she beheld everything under the same appearance as the day before, and numberless preceding days, except for the difference between sunshine and sullen storm. Her eyes travelled along the street, from doorstep to doorstep, noting the wet sidewalks, with here and there a puddle in hollows that had been imperceptible until filled with water. She screwed her dim optics to their acutest point, in the hope of making out, with greater distinctness, a certain window, where she half saw, half guessed, that a tailor's seamstress was sitting at her work. Hepzibah flung herself upon that unknown woman's companionship, even thus far off. Then she was attracted by a chaise rapidly passing, and watched its moist and glistening top, and its splashing wheels, until it had turned the corner, and refused to carry any further her idly trifling, because appalled and overburdened mind. When the vehicle had disappeared, she allowed herself still another loitering moment, for the patched figure of good Uncle Vinner was now visible, coming slowly from the head of the street downward, with a rheumatic limp 
because the east wind had got into his joints. Hepzibah wished that he would pass yet more slowly, and befriend her shivering solitude a little longer. Anything that would take her out of the grievous present, and interpose human beings betwixt herself and what was nearest to her. Whatever would defer for an instant the inevitable errand on which she was bound. All such impediments were welcome. Next to the lightest heart, the heaviest is apt to be most playful. Hepzibah had little hardihood for her own proper pain, and far less for what she must inflict on Clifford. Of so slight a nature, and so shattered by his previous calamities, it could not well be short of utter ruin to bring him face to face with the hard, relentless man who had been his evil destiny through life. Even had there been no bitter recollections, nor any hostile interest now at stake between them, the mere natural repugnance of the more sensitive system to the massive, weighty, and unimpressible one must in itself have been disastrous to the former. It would be like flinging a porcelain vase with already a crack in it against a granite column. Never before had Hepzibah so adequately estimated the powerful character of her cousin Jaffrey, powerful by intellect, energy of will, the long habit of acting among men, and, as she believed, by his unscrupulous pursuit of selfish ends through evil means. It did but increase the difficulty that Judge Pynchon was under a delusion as to the secret which he supposed Clifford to possess. Men of his strength of purpose and customary sagacity, if they chanced to adopt a mistaken opinion in practical matters, so wedge it and fasten it among things known to be true, that to wrench it out of their minds is hardly less difficult than pulling up an oak. Thus, as the judge required an impossibility of Clifford, the latter, as he could not perform it, must needs perish. For what, in the grasp of a man like this, was to become of Clifford's soft poetic nature that never should have had a task more stubborn than to set a life of beautiful enjoyment to the flow and rhythm of musical cadences? Indeed, what had become of it already? Broken, blighted, all but annihilated, soon to be wholly so. For a moment the thought crossed Hepzibah's mind whether Clifford might not really have such knowledge of their deceased uncle's vanished estate, as the judge imputed to him. She remembered some vague intimations on her brother's part, which, if the supposition were not essentially preposterous, might have been so interpreted. There had been schemes of travel and residence abroad, daydreams of brilliant life at home, and splendid castles in the air, which it would have required boundless wealth to build and realize. Had this wealth been in her power, how gladly would Hepzibah have bestowed it all upon her iron-hearted kinsman to buy for Clifford the freedom and seclusion of the desolate old house. But she believed that her brother's schemes were as destitute of actual substance and purpose as a child's pictures of its future life while sitting in a little chair by its mother's knee. Clifford had none but shadowy gold at his command, and it was not the stuff to satisfy Judge Pynchon. Was there no help in their extremity? It seemed strange that there should be none, with a city round about her. It would be so easy to throw up the window and send forth a shriek, at the strange agony of which everybody would come hastening to the rescue, well understanding it to be the cry of a human soul, at some dreadful crisis. But how wild, how almost laughable, the fatality, and yet how continually it comes to pass, thought Hepzibah, in this dull delirium of a world, that whosoever and with however kindly a purpose should come to help, 
they would be sure to help the strongest side. Might and wrong combined, like iron magnetized, are endowed with irresistible attraction. There would be Judge Pynchon, a person eminent in the public view, of high station and great wealth, a philanthropist, a member of Congress and of the Church, and intimately associated with whatever else bestows good name. So imposing and these advantageous lights that Hepzibah herself could hardly help shrinking from her own conclusions as to his hollow integrity. The judge on one side, and who on the other? The guilty Clifford? Once a byword? Now an indistinctly remembered ignominy. Nevertheless, in spite of this perception that the judge would draw all human aid to his own behalf, Hepzibah was so unaccustomed to act for herself that the least word of counsel would have swayed her to any mode of action. Little Phoebe Pension would at once have lighted up the whole scene, if not by any available suggestion, yet simply by the warm vivacity of her character. The idea of the artist occurred to Hepzibah. Young and unknown, mere vagrant adventurer as he was, she had been conscious of a force in Holgrave which might well adapt him to be the champion of a crisis. With this thought in her mind, she unbolted a door, cobwebbed and long disused, but which had served as a former medium of communication between her own part of the house and the gable where the wandering daguerreotypist had now established his temporary home. He was not there. A book, face downward, on the table, a roll of manuscript, a half-written sheet, a newspaper, some tools of his present occupation, and several rejected daguerreotypes, conveyed an impression as if he were close at hand. But at this period of the day, as Hepzibah might have anticipated, the artist was at his public rooms. With an impulse of idle curiosity that flickered among her heavy thoughts, she looked at one of the daguerreotypes, and beheld Judge Pynchon frowning at her. Fate stared her in the face. She turned back from her fruitless quest with a heart-sinking sense of disappointment. In all her years of seclusion, she had never felt, as now, what it was to be alone. It seemed as if the house stood in a desert, or by some spell was made invisible to those who dwelt around, or passed beside it, so that any mode of misfortune, miserable accident or crime, might happen in it without the possibility of aid. In her grief and wounded pride, Hepzibah had spent her life in divesting herself of friends. She had willfully cast off the support which God has ordained his creatures to need from one another, and it was now her punishment that Clifford and herself would fall the easier victims to their kindred enemy. Returning to the arched window, she lifted her eyes, scowling poor dim-sighted Hepzibah in the face of heaven, and strove hard to send up a prayer through the dense gray pavement of clouds. Those mists had gathered, as if to symbolize a great brooding mass of human trouble, doubt, confusion, and chill indifference between earth and the better regions. Her faith was too weak, the prayer too heavy to be thus uplifted. It fell back a lump of lead upon her heart. It smote her with the wretched conviction that providence intermeddled not in these petty wrongs of one individual to his fellow, nor had any balm for these little agonies of a solitary soul, but shed its justice and its mercy in a broad sun-like sweep over half the universe at once. Its vastness made it nothing. But Hepzibah did not see that just as there comes a warm sunbeam into every cottage window, 
so comes a love-beam of God's care and pity for every separate need. At last, finding no other pretext for deferring the torture that she was to inflict on Clifford, her reluctance to which was the true cause of her loitering at the window, her search for the artist, and even her abortive prayer, dreading also to hear the stern voice of Judge Pynchon from below stairs chiding her delay. She crept slowly, a pale grief-stricken figure, a dismal shape of woman, with almost torpid limbs, slowly to her brother's door, and knocked. There was no reply. And how should there have been? Her hand, tremulous with the shrinking purpose which directed it, had smitten so feebly against the door that the sound could hardly have gone inward. She knocked again. Still no response. Nor was it to be wondered at. She had struck with the entire force of her heart's vibration, communicating by some subtle magnetism her own terror to the summons. Clifford would turn his face to the pillow and cover his head beneath the bedclothes like a startled child at midnight. She knocked a third time, three regular strokes, gentle but perfectly distinct, and with meaning in them. For modulate it with what cautious art we will, the hand cannot help playing some tune of what we feel upon the senseless wood. Clifford returned no answer. Clifford, dear brother, said Hepzibah, shall I come in? A silence. Two or three times and more, Hepzibah repeated his name, without result, till, thinking her brother's sleep unwontedly profound, she undid the door and, entering, found the chamber vacant. How could he have come forth, and when, without her knowledge? Was it possible that, in spite of the stormy day, and worn out with the irksomeness within doors, he had betaken himself to his customary haunt in the garden, and was now shivering under the cheerless shelter of the summer-house? She hastily threw up a window, thrust forth her turbaned head and the half of her gaunt figure, and searched the whole garden through, as completely as her dim vision would allow. She could see the interior of the summer-house, and its circular seat, kept moist by the droppings of the roof. It had no occupant. Clifford was not thereabouts. Unless, indeed, he had crept for concealment, as for a moment Hepzibah fancied might be the case, into a great, wet mass of tangled and broad-leaved shadow, where the squash vines were clambering tumultuously upon an old wooden framework, set casually aslant against the fence. This could not be, however. He was not there. For while Hepzibah was looking, a strange grimalkin stole forth from the very spot, and picked his way across the garden. Twice he paused to snuff the air, and then anew directed his course towards the parlour window. Whether it was only on account of the stealthy, prying manner common to the race, or that this cat seemed to have more than ordinary mischief in his thoughts, the old gentlewoman, in spite of her much perplexity, felt an impulse to drive the animal away, and accordingly flung down a window-stick. The cat stared up at her, like a detected thief or murderer, and the next instant took to flight. No other living creature was visible in the garden. Chanticleer and his family had either not left their roost, disheartened by the interminable rain, or had done the next wisest thing by seasonably returning to it. Hepzibah closed the window. But where was Clifford? Could it be that, aware of the presence of his evil destiny, he had crept silently down the staircase while the judge and Hepzibah stood talking in the shop, and had softly undone the fastenings of the outer door, and made his escape into the street? 
With that thought, she seemed to behold his gray, wrinkled, yet childlike aspect, and the old-fashioned garments which he wore about the house, a figure such as one sometimes imagines himself to be, with the world's eye upon him, in a troubled dream. This figure of her wretched brother would go wandering through the city, attracting all eyes and everybody's wonder and repugnance, like a ghost, the more to be shuddered at because visible at noontide. To incur the ridicule of the younger crowd that knew him not, the harsher scorn and indignation of a few old men who might recall his once familiar features, to be the sport of boys who, when old enough to run about the streets, have no more reverence for what is beautiful and holy, nor pity for what is sad, no more sense of sacred misery sanctifying the human shape in which it embodies itself than if Satan were the father of them all. Goaded by their taunts, their loud shrill cries and cruel laughter, insulted by the filth of the public ways which they would fling upon him, or, as it might well be, distracted by the mere strangeness of his situation, though nobody should afflict him with so much as a thoughtless word, what wonder if Clifford were to break into some wild extravagance which was certain to be interpreted as lunacy? Thus, Judge Pension's fiendish scheme would be ready accomplished to his hands. Then Hepzibah reflected that the town was almost completely water-girdled. The wharves stretched out towards the center of the harbor, and in this inclement weather were deserted by the ordinary throng of merchants, laborers, and seafaring men. Each wharf a solitude, with the vessels moored stem and stern along its misty length. Should her brother's aimless footsteps stray thitherward, and he but bend one moment over the deep black tide, would he not bethink himself that here was the sure refuge within his reach, and that with a single step, or the slightest overbalance of his body, he might be forever beyond his kinsman's gripe? Oh, the temptation! To make of his ponderous sorrow a security! to sink with its leaden weight upon him, and never rise again. The horror of this last conception was too much for Hepzibah. Even Jaffrey Pension must help her now. She hastened down the staircase, shrieking as she went. Clifford is gone, she cried. I cannot find my brother. Help, Jaffrey Pension. Some harm will happen to him. She threw open the parlor door. But what with the shade of branches across the windows, and the smoke-blackened ceiling, and the dark oak paneling of the walls, there was hardly so much daylight in the room that Hepzibah's imperfect sight could accurately distinguish the judge's figure. She was certain, however, that she saw him sitting in the ancestral armchair near the center of the floor, with his face somewhat averted, and looking towards a window. So firm and quiet is the nervous system of such men as Judge Pension, that he had perhaps stirred not more than once since her departure, but in the hard composure of his temperament, retained the position into which accident had thrown him. "'I tell you, Jaffrey,' cried Hepzibah impatiently, as she turned from the parlor door to search other rooms, "'my brother is not in his chamber. You must help me seek him.' But Judge Pension was not the man to let himself be startled from an easy chair with haste ill-befitting either the dignity of his character or his broad personal basis by the alarm of an hysteric woman. Yet considering his own interest in the matter, he might have bestirred himself with a little more alacrity. "'Do you hear me, Jaffrey Pension?' screamed Hepzibah, as she again approached the parlor door, after an ineffectual search elsewhere. "'Clifford is gone!' At this instant, on the threshold of the parlor, emerging from within, appeared Clifford himself. 
His face was preternaturally pale. So deadly white, indeed, that through all the glimmering indistinctness of the passageway, Hepzibah could discern his features, as if a light fell on them alone. Their vivid and wild expression seemed likewise sufficient to illuminate them. It was an expression of scorn and mockery, coinciding with the emotions indicated by his gesture. As Clifford stood on the threshold, partly turning back, he pointed his finger within the parlor, and shook it slowly as though he would have summoned, not Hepzibah alone, but the whole world, to gaze at some object inconceivably ridiculous. This action, so ill-timed and extravagant, accompanied too with a look that showed more like joy than any other kind of excitement, compelled Hepzibah to dread that her stern kinsman's ominous visit had driven her poor brother to absolute insanity. Nor could she otherwise account for the judge's quiescent mood than by supposing him craftily on the watch, while Clifford developed these symptoms of a distracted mind. "'Be quiet, Clifford,' whispered his sister, raising her hand to impress caution. "'Oh, for heaven's sake, be quiet!' "'Let him be quiet. What can he do better?' answered Clifford, with a still wilder gesture, pointing into the room which he had just quitted. "'As for us, Hepzibah, we can dance now. We can sing, laugh, play, do what we will.' The weight is gone, Hepzibah. It is gone off this weary old world, and we may be as light-hearted as little Phoebe herself. And, in accordance with his words, he began to laugh, still pointing his finger at the object invisible to Hepzibah within the parlor. She was seized with a sudden intuition of some horrible thing. She thrust herself past Clifford and disappeared into the room, but almost immediately returned, with the cry choking in her throat. Gazing at her brother with an affrighted glance of inquiry, she beheld him all in a tremor and a quake, from head to foot, while amid these commoded elements of passion or alarm still flickered his gusty mirth. "'My God, what is to become of us?' gasped Hepzibah. "'Come,' said Clifford, in a tone of brief decision, most unlike what was usual with him. "'We stay here too long. Let us leave the old house to our cousin Jaffrey. He will take good care of it. Hepzibah now noticed that Clifford had on a cloak, a garment of long ago, in which he had constantly muffled himself during these days of easterly storm. He beckoned with his hand, and intimated, so far as she could comprehend him, his purpose that they should go together from the house. There are chaotic, blind, or drunken moments in the lives of persons who lack real force of character, moments of test in which courage would most assert itself. But where these individuals, if left to themselves, stagger aimlessly along, or follow implicitly whatever guidance may befall them, even if it be a child's, no matter how preposterous or insane, a purpose is a godsend to them. Hepzibah had reached this point. Unaccustomed to action or responsibility, full of horror at what she had seen, and afraid to inquire, or almost to imagine, how it had come to pass, affrighted at the fatality which seemed to pursue her brother, stupefied by the dim, thick, stifling atmosphere of dread which filled the house as with a death-smell, and obliterated all definiteness of thought, she yielded without a question, and on the instant, to the will which Clifford expressed. For herself she was like a person in a dream, when the will always sleeps. Clifford, ordinarily so destitute of this faculty, had found it in the tension of the crisis. "'Why do you delay so?' cried he sharply. "'Put on your cloak and hood, or whatever it pleases you to wear. 
No matter what, you cannot look beautiful nor brilliant, my poor Hepzibah. Take your purse with money in it, and come along. Hepzibah obeyed these instructions, as if nothing else were to be done or thought of. She began to wonder, it is true, why she did not wake up, and at what still more intolerable pitch of dizzy trouble her spirit would struggle out of the maze, and make her conscious that nothing of all this had actually happened. Of course it was not real. No such black easterly day as this had yet begun to be. Judge Pension had not talked with her. Clifford had not laughed, pointed, beckoned her away with him. But she had merely been afflicted, as lonely sleepers often are, with a great deal of unreasonable misery in a morning dream. Now, now I shall certainly awake, thought Hepzibah, as she went to and fro, making her little preparations. I can bear it no longer. I must wake up now. But it came not, that awakening moment. It came not even when, just before they left the house, Clifford stole to the parlor door and made a parting obeisance to the sole occupant of the room. "'What an absurd figure the old fellow cuts now,' whispered he to Hepzibah. "'Just when he fancied he had me completely under his thumb. "'Come, come, make haste, or he will start up, like giant despair, in pursuit of Christian and hopeful, and catch us yet.' As they passed into the street, Clifford directed Hepzibah's attention to something on one of the posts of the front door. It was merely the initials of his own name, which, with somewhat of his characteristic grace about the forms of the letters, he had cut there when a boy. The brother and sister departed, and left Judge Pynchon sitting in the old home of his forefathers all by himself, so heavy and lumpish that we can liken him to nothing better than a defunct nightmare, which had perished in the midst of its wickedness and left its flabby corpse on the breast of the tormented one, to be gotten rid of as it might. End of chapter 16 of The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne Read by Nicodemus